Yeah, Kevin's on a much-needed vacation, and so if you're visiting, you'll have to sort of sit through me here and then make sure you come back uh, next week and, and listen here, Kevin. He should be back, I think, next week. I think that's right. Um, so I'm going to open it real quick in a word of prayer. Just let's go before the Lord. Lord, we uh, come before you this morning. We thank you for our time to gather and to study your word. Lord, you, we know that you've preserved it for us. And you've even given us your Holy Spirit to guide us into all truth. We pray that uh, you'll guide us as we look into your word today. And we thank you for the time that we've had to worship your name and praise your name. We pray that you'll now teach us, help us to grow in maturity and stature before you. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So, I typically uh, try to start my messages with a little anecdotal story or something to catch attention uh, of, of, of you guys. But... I've also typically been accused of going over time. So I'm going to, I decided maybe what I would cut is the anecdotal story to try to gather attention. I'll just say, well, let's just, we, especially given the content today, I figured let's just, let's just go right to what we want to get to here. Because I think we'll need every minute here to sort of mine through the scriptures, look at some things uh, as we wrestle with, with, a, with a profound truth that I think we, it, it does us well to study. So and, and I think in doing so, you, you grow in maturity, you grow before the Lord and your understanding of him and his word. And that's sort of where I wanted to start because Ephesians makes it clear that one of our goals of our time here on the earth is to grow and to grow in maturity, to grow in understanding. Paul said it this way, he said, until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God to a mature man, to the measure of the stature which belongs to the fullness of Christ. So Paul says that our goal is to attain to the unity of the faith. Uh, The faith is the body of doctrine that we hold as true. Uh, And then he he highlights the knowledge uh, of the Son of God, something that we want to grow into. We need, it takes time to grow in the knowledge of who the Son of God is, what God has done for us through him. Uh, This isn't basic salvation knowledge. This is deep understanding and knowledge about uh, Christ, our Savior, what he's done for us. Uh, It takes time. It takes study of the word to get there. It takes careful prayer. And I would make the claim, as we'll see today in the word, it actually sometimes takes crisis. It actually sometimes takes struggle. It takes things that you are faced with in life to reach that maturity, that knowledge of the Son of God. Uh, and, he's, and he uses these words, like the, the Greek word teleos, which means, translated here, mature, but it means to reach an end, to be perfected. Uh, he uses the word stature, which is a Greek word helikia, meaning maturity or fullness of age. And then he closes out with this fullness term, the idea of, he uses a Greek word pleroma, which is filling up or be to, to be completely filled up. That's sort of the picture Paul paints. Um, And so this is a great objective that we have uh, given to us, Uh, and yet, like I mentioned, it requires us to grapple with things at times. It requires us to to spend adequate time in things, and also to be willing to be honest about things that in our minds we we look out, we see things in in the world around us, we we go through things, and it, and it, it, it sometimes can rattle us. And I think that in those processes, we grow, like I mentioned earlier. And so um, on this basis, I want to consider a profound question that has faced and troubled many a person. 
including many of the writers of Scripture. And that is, why do the wicked prosper? While the God-fearing individuals suffer hardship, struggle, undergo chastening, as one writer will say, reproof, discipline, it's, it's tough. Persecution may be involved. Uh, this is a big question, and, and actually it can be a very troubling question because you look out on the, on the earth around you and you see evil, you see the arrogant, you see the wicked. Our culture lifts up the arrogant a lot of times. They'll put the camera right on them in sports games and everything. Look at this guy. And, and, they're, and they're, they're, they're given wealth and fame, and, and you sit there and, and, and you're living a, a humble life, quiet before the Lord, and you begin to ask this secondary question, what is the gain in godliness? I see gain over here for going down this road of the wicked, but I struggle at times to see the gain of godliness. And that is a, a question that people have faced. And we're going to look at an individual in Scripture that faced it in an extreme way. So fortunately, we're not alone <clears throat> when we tackle and we look at these sorts of questions. Uh, there was a Levite in the Old Testament who was around in the latter part of David's reign, and he had a special gift. He was a great musician, and David recognized that. He could write great songs, and he could lead the whole nation of Israel. And, and he, David appointed him to be the, sort of the worship leader, one of the main worship leaders of the nation of Israel, a great, a great spot of honor. Um, <clears throat> and I want to look at some things that he said. Uh, that, that individual is Asaph. And, and he wrote several psalms, several chapters of the Bible that are attributed to him. And I want to focus in on Psalm 73 because I think we can, we can learn a lot from it. He starts off in Psalm 73. He says, surely God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart, exclamation point. But as for me, my feet came close to stumbling. My steps had almost slipped. Asaph starts is his song here with a belief that he held true, a doctrinal statement that he had no doubt about. He opens with this Greek word, act, that's, that we see the translation, surely I believe this with every fiber of my being. I'm going to pound the pulpit on this. I'm going to make sure that everyone hears me say that I'm convinced that God is good to Israel and to those who fear, <clears throat> who are pure in heart. Um, and he, so he starts with this great profound statement, but then you have to see verse two here. But as for me, a, a little bit different tone here, but as for me, I was about to fall. I was about to slip. I was about to stumble. And you have to say, what's the situation here, Asaph? Well, I mean, on one hand, you're, you're convicted of this strongly. And then over here, you, you, turn, you sort of turn the question, but as for me, I was, I was about to struggle. God is good to Israel. He's good to those. But as for me, he states, it would be like me saying, well, I know God is good to Christians. As far as me personally, I was having some doubts. In fact, I was about to fall. And I'll use a verse that we all know, like Romans 8, 28, that says, and we know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. I hope that we all believe that's true. And we can stand up here and say, I believe that is true. That is a true statement. And it's real easy to say that when someone else is going through hardship. You can look at them and say, brother, God, is, he'll work it out for good. 
But when you're the guy, when you're the person, it all of a sudden has a little different reality, doesn't it? It gets tested a little bit. It get, you, you get brought to a point, is that, am I going to bank on that? Or is there, are there, am I going to struggle a little bit with this? Because this is super difficult, what I'm going through. Really hard, and I'm, tr- I'm having a hard time seeing how it's going to work out in my own life for good. Um, sometimes it doesn't look like it's going for good. Just ask Job. It doesn't look like it's going for good. I don't see any end to this situation. It's been a decade. It's been two decades, three decades. I don't see it working out for good. Uh, and so sometimes we wonder how you can take a doctrinal truth that you believe in with, with veracity. You're, you're strong in it. You, you, you're, you have bold conviction in it, and yet you're, you're impersonal about it. You say, yeah, you're good to them. You're good to, you're good to Israel. But as for me, you, you don't bring it into personal focus. Um, and so Asaph is struggling to apply the doctrine that he believed in in verse 1 with his personal experience wherein he says that he's close to stumbling, close to slipping. You say, well, why? Why is this the case? What is he wrestling with that is making it so difficult for him to see God's goodness to him? Why is he so close to stumbling and has and put him into this precarious situation? He acknowledges, I'm in a, I was in a very precarious situation. I was about to stumble and about to fall. And I think you look at this and you say, well... I think the answer is he's looking out and wrestling with the very same question that I opened us up with that we're grappling with this morning, which is why do I see the wicked prosper and excel while my Christian life seems to be filled with chastening, reproof, discipline, hardship, perhaps persecution? We know this is what Asaph is thinking because he makes no doubt about it. In fact, he spends more verses and more sections of his psalm talking about what he was struggling with when he goes on in 73.3. He says, For I was envious of the arrogant as I saw the prosperity of the wicked. For there are no pains in their death and their body is fat. They are not in trouble as other men, nor are they plagued like mankind. Therefore, pride is their necklace. The garment of violence covers them. Their eyes bulge from fatness. The imaginations of their heart run riot. They mock and wickedly speak of oppression. They speak from on high. They have set their mouth against the heavens, and their tongue parades through the earth. Therefore, his people return to this place, and waters of abundance are drunk by them. And they say, how does God know? And is there knowledge with the Most High? Behold, take a look at it. These are the wicked, and always at ease. They have increased in wealth. Surely, same word again, in vain I have kept my heart pure and washed my hands in innocence, for I have been stricken all day long and chastened every morning. It's key to see how he compares the life of the wicked which if you were to summarize it, maybe even one English word, prosperity, things are going well for him. And then he contrasts, on the other hand, his life. He uses words like stricken, chastened. He, he, he's, he's acknowledging this is his lot. This is, what, this is the way his life has gone. And he's unable to bring the, the conviction of God's goodness to Israel and to those that are pure in heart into a personal application in his life. 
And yet, this is what I love about God's word. It doesn't hide behind some veil or pretense. It actually dives right into the heart of a man and lets you see what we're struggling with. Right here, even today, we still struggle. There are people that we we struggle with this. I have struggled with these sorts of issues. Um, And so the the word of God opens up things like this and lets us have uh, a view into them so that we can shed light on it. And grow as a result. And for Asaph, his psalm is allowing to see into a real-world crisis that many a person has undergone. There's no clouding the reality of where Asaph is at the beginning of the psalm. He hasn't sinned yet, but he's close. He hasn't slipped yet, but he's very close. And you'd say, well, why is this? What, what's going on? Well, his eyes have been looking more at the earthly situation and much less at the eternal perspective or the heavenly situation that, that he has that he should be focusing on. He's looking at the wicked and the arrogant, struggling with the age-old question of why the arrogant and the wicked prosper while the godly seem to suffer hardship. It, you know what it is? It's a question of fairness. It's the good old question that my kids say, it isn't fair. There's, there's a lot, there's something that is, is breaking down in my logic. If we were to summarize his conflict and we look at, at the next slide there, Kyle, we see that a couple of key things that show up. Kyle, can, yeah, we see that the arrogant and the wicked seem to excel. They live easily. They gain wealth and power. They enjoy pleasures. But number two, my life is hard, difficult, stricken, and chastened. Something isn't adding up. Something isn't fair. It isn't balanced. Uh, and, and, we're, and he's faced with this. And if you ask the question... Uh, is there money to be made in sin? Is there pleasure to be made in sin? Is there gain if you go down the wicked road? Well, Hebrews said, by faith, Moses, when he had grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, daughter choosing rather to endure ill treatment with the people of God than to enjoy the passing pleasures of sin. We, we need to make no doubt about it. There's a, pl- a passing pleasure associated with going down that road, gratification. Sin gives us a one-time, limited-time offer for this short-duration gratification that we could go down. And, and Asaph has no problem seeing that. And, and we can look out on our world and see that people go down that road, and for a time, it may seem okay. Uh, and Asaph has seen this ease of life and the gain of the sinful and the exaltation of the arrogant. And this is where now it moves from just sort of thoughts to where he ends up in an, in an, in an error. And he, may, he makes no bones about the error. He tells us. Um, we see this error come into complete focus in seventy three thirteen when he says, Surely in vain I have kept my heart pure and washed my hands in innocence. For I have been stricken all day long and chastened every morning. If I had said... I will speak thus, behold, I should have betrayed the generation of thy children. When I pondered to understand this, it was troublesome in my sight. Asaph goes all the way to show us where he began to go, go awry, go a little on, an, on an errant path, when he actually began to question the gain of godliness. Surely in vain, he just sees it, surely in vain I've kept my heart pure. He makes no bones about it. He allows us to see into his heart where he thinks for just a moment that his Christian life, this life walked in godliness, has been in vain. 
He thinks that it's just too difficult when you consider the other road. And he goes further. I love how he goes further, and he, and he goes into verse uh, 15. He realized that if he would have opened his mouth about this, he would have betrayed a generation. He would have gone. He would have gone before the people of Israel. If he would have opened his mouth and actually stated these things, it actually, I was thinking about as I was writing this, it's hard to even present this other road because it, you don't want to even talk about the other road. And you, you'd want to not even, you don't even want to acknowledge the fact that this narrow road over here, it's going to be hard. It's going to be, re, it could be really hard. And you'd rather, and, and it's, when, you, when you present it that way, it's almost like you, you, you churn inside. You're like, that seems, I don't even want to go there. And Asaph says, if I would have stated these things with, with boldness or something before the people, that would have betrayed a whole generation of thy people. Fortunately, Asaph kept his mouth closed as he pondered the troublesome question, he struggled with his misunderstanding surrounding his walk of godliness because had he opened it, that would have been the big slip. That would have been the big fall, but he didn't go there. It's always good, by the way, when you, you know, in life, as you walk, you, 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 I, it's key to see this. He's struggling, but he hasn't fallen. There's a difference between struggling through something and sinfully falling into it. He is close, but he hasn't. It, we have to see that. And the Lord comes in to correct him. In 73.16, you see the correction come in. He says, when I pondered to understand this, it was troublesome in my sight. Until I came into the sanctuary of God, then I perceived their end. Surely, again, the Greek word, ak, thou, hast, thou dost set them in slippery places, Thou dost cast them down to destruction. How they are destroyed in a moment. They are utterly swept away by sudden terrors. Like a dream when one awakes, O Lord, when aroused, thou wilt despise their form. We ask the question, where did Asaph find the answer? Where did Asaph find the answer? He found the answer. Praise the Lord. He found the answer. He went to the sanctuary of God. It, the actual word is sanctuaries, which I, I, I was fascinated as I considered this. This is pretty fascinating to think that this, this would be a, a places that are the most intimate places of the Lord, where he is approached as the holy God, and he is, a, he is intersected with man in the Israelite you know, economy. This would be places such as the tabernacle or the temple, all the way down to the holy of holies. He uses a plural term here for the sanctuaries of God. Um, and only when he goes to these places and draws near to the Lord could he find the answer. He's tried the human logic. Asaph, he's laid it all out. He's, he's used all of his human reasoning. He's used all of his logic he can to figure it out, but no answer, no peace it, it whatsoever. Not until he draws near to the Lord does he find something. And what does the Lord do for him? The Lord reveals something. He said, I'll give you the answer, Asaph. You came to me. You came to me. You drew near, and I'll give you the answer. He, he revealed to Asaph their end. He said, when I perceived their end, this is a, a, a great Hebrew word, akarith, uh, meaning the after part or the end. God allowed him to see the end of the book for the wicked. He got to see God's vantage point. 
And when he got to see that vantage point, he, got, he, he no longer was bothered by the wicked. He saw where they ended, cast down to destruction, on slippery places, destroyed in a moment, utterly swept away. These are the terms he uses. This eternal viewpoint, if we think about it, has a way of quickly correcting these sorts of, of errors, these, these close slips. And I think that this viewpoint is the answer for much of our life when we look at the sovereignty of God, his eternal aspect, his eternal plan, where things are heading for this earth. When you look out and you see certain things and the prideful rise up, you can either respond, and go, oh, this is going down the, you know, going down the tubes. God's out. It's, it's gone. It, it, the, the, the nation's headed down the wrong path. Well, it's okay. It's okay. The guys, have, many men and women have seen this for millennium. And yet those that turn to the Lord and draw near the, re- re- the revealed things about God's sovereignty, God's justice, God's goodness towards us. Uh, now Asaph is back into a proper view, a proper perspective. His eyes are now looking to the Lord's eternal plan. He sees the end of the wicked and the arrogant. Now he's, what about his role towards the godly, the God-fearing? What about him personally? Seventy-three twenty-one. he goes on. When my heart was embittered and I was pierced within, then I was senseless and ignorant. I was like a beast before thee. Nevertheless, I am continually with thee. Thou hast taken hold of my right hand. With thy counsel, thou wilt guide me. And afterwards, receive me into glory. So after a brief confession there by Asaph, where he acknowledges the senselessness of his heir, and, and, and his, he was embittered, in heart, and he had said it was like a great piercing during this time. But then he tell, even acknowledges before the Lord, I was like a great beast before you, a senseless beast. I, I made no sense. But then all of a sudden, the personal pronouns start showing up in the back end of this song. It started out to Israel, to those, but all of a sudden, the God that was good to Israel and to those is now good to me. He's taken hold of my right hand. He will guide me. And afterwards, there's the same Akar Hebrew word. Afterwards, when it's all said and done, he will receive me into glory. He saw God's role to the arrogant. Now he's acknowledging God's role to to the godly. Taking his right hand. As a loving father, I mean, I love being with my, Alex is probably the youngest one that still does this, but I'll walk in the parking lot somewhere or out from a store and and inevitably you'll feel a little hand come up to grab grab my hand. And I I love taking his hand. And it's a great, you feel like, you know, I've got you here. I've got you, I'll lead you through here. And that's sort of the picture. All of a sudden, Asaph says, he's got me. He, he's, he's, he's got me by the right hand. He, he's held out his arm. He's got me there. Uh, and he understands the, the after part where he will enter into glory when it's all done. Now, if the psalm ended there, we could all go home and say, good job, Asaph. We can learn a lot from you, brother. But the reality is the Lord gives us even a much deeper picture. And why I started with Ephesians talking about maturity. Uh, I don't know if we can find statements in the Bible that have much more heartfelt devotion to the Lord than the end of this psalm. And you say, how do you go from being, he says, embittered and pierced and, and, and in error, saying that 
surely in vain I've kept my, you know, I've gone down this road of godliness and my hands are pure. It's in, it's in vain. But at the end, we're going to find statements here that are, that are more profoundly devoted to the Lord than I think that, that you find in, in much of Scripture. In 73.25, he says, Whom have I in heaven but thee? And besides thee, I desire nothing on earth. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. For behold, those who are far from thee will perish. Thou hast destroyed all those who are unfaithful to thee. But as for me, the nearness of God is my good. I have made the Lord God my refuge, that I may tell of all thy works. We sometimes talk about total surrender. In the Christian life, we sang a song that was that I thought I was sitting there thinking of Asaph as we sang that that second song, and he talks about all I desire is you, Lord Jesus. Asaph came to that conclusion, and he arrived there. But I would challenge you to say it's real easy to say those things. It's real easy to say and even sing a song. All I desire is you. But how many of us could honestly say with absolute veracity that all I desire, period, on the earth is the Lord. There isn't any other desire I have. That's hard to say and really, really, really mean it. But I truly believe Asaph, he had got there. He arrived there. But it required a struggle. It required a crisis for him to move through to seek the Lord's presence to, to deal with before he could get there. He's, now you see here as he gets to the end, um, you know, he clearly is acknowledging the end in, in view because he says, look, my heart may fail, my flesh may fail, but I, I will be with you uh, and you will be my portion. Uh, he, he, you see these concluding remarks. It's clear he's now found a newfound love for being near to his God, faithful to his call upon his life, even during the hardship, even during the tribulation, even during the persecution, when there's questions about should I stay on this road or take that other road over there? He says, no, I've, I've arrived at the right conclusion. I see now, you see it in 27, behold, he acknowledges those who are far from thee will perish. Thou hast destroyed those who are unfaithful. Notice the past tense word destroyed. He's counting this as guaranteed. It's guaranteed is done. This will happen to those on that road. But I, he's now, look at the nearness. But as for me, the nearness of God is my good. All of a sudden now it's my good. Do you see this? The first, second, first and second verse, good to other people. But as for me, struggling to see it. The last verse, but as for me, the nearness of God is my good. He arrives at. So we see the picture at the end of Psalm 73 is one of profound uh, growth and maturity in a Christian's life. Uh, difficult to arrive at is the reality. But I, I want to ask the question, how does Asaph, and you look at this, step back and look at it from the big picture, how do you arrive at this point, what are some key aspects that helped him with this great turnaround? Uh, wherein he was so close to stumbling at one point, but then he, he's able to turn it around and right the ship. And I think there's several points. 
Um, he goes back to the doctrine of that he knew and believed. Go ahead and advance the slide there, Kyle. He goes back to the doctrine that he knew and believed with veracity. He was honest with himself that he was struggling to make this a personal belief. To personal. It's, it's an impersonal belief, yes. Is it personal for me? A little bit of a struggle. He's honest about it, though. He realized that his logic, that his perspective, and his emotions would not provide the answers. He then has to choose something. And this is a key thing I think you've got to see. He, you have to choose to draw near to the Lord, the Bible says. Draw near to the Lord, he draws near to you. He chooses to draw near to God and into his most intimate places, the sanctuaries of the Lord. He seeks his wisdom and counsel on this issue. And God then revealed to him the end of the arrogant and the wicked. God revealed the end and the future for his own servant, Asaph. And as a result, Asaph's heart was now at a great peace after changing taking off sort of the the earthly goggles, just looking down here, and he exchanges those for the heavenly perspective, the earthly or the eternal perspective. He's now at peace. And as the doctrine of verse 1 that he read with such, you know, boldness is now intimately personal. He says, God is my good, not just Israel's good. So he's reached a new level of Christian maturity. And I would ask the question, can you arrive at such personal relationship and maturity with the Lord without struggling through things in life just like this. I'll just tell you from my experience, the times when I've grown the most in my maturity are not when everything's just hunky-dory and everything's fine. It's times when I get the guy knocking on the door, something's occurred. I get a phone call, some, something's gone awry. Some major event, I, I could, we could all sit here and tell stories. If we had an open mic We could tell stories about the times when the Lord has brought us through something that we thought maybe we may never see the end of it, or it was just so burdensome, we we, we struggled. So we've seen Asaph's uh, journey as he transitioned from this great conflict, as he pondered this age-old question of why the wicked prosper and the godly suffer, as he arrived at a deep devotion as a result of it. But I want to consider quickly how this pattern has been faced by many a believer in the Bible. It runs like a thread in reality through the scriptures. Job walked with the Lord, lost everything. He, he, he actually, he's surrounded by wicked counsel. He's told that he's sinned. He's, uh, there, there's, there's much evil in the world. He actually states in Job 9, the earth is given into the hand of the wicked, he states. And then he gets corrected by the Lord, just like Asaph has to get a little correction. And then he has to wait for the Lord's restoration. That's Job. Consider Joseph, walked with the Lord, betrayed by sinful brothers, sold into slavery, falsely accused by lying lips, forgotten by the cupbearer that he asked. He said, remember me when you get out of here, out of this prison. Cupbearer doesn't remember until many, many years later. All the while, the wicked, like Potiphar's wife and those who have done these things to him and his brother, sinful brothers, they're all, they're all okay. But he's in prison. And he has to wait 
He has to wait to see what God's good is in this. Think about the nation of Israel and Egypt living in oppressed, the Lord says, for 400 years. Longer, way longer than the United States has been in existence. There are Hebrew people that believe in the God of, the, of, their, of their fathers. And they're having to live through a great oppression by wicked Egyptian leaders that are full of idolatry. Would you not ask the question, what is going on here? Where is our God? It's been 400 years. They have to wait to see what the Lord had in store. He knew how to deal with Pharaoh, and his time came. What about Hannah? Walked with the Lord, but unable to have children. A tough lot to bear. Not to mention the fact that she bore the burden of her arch rival, the Penina, that, that regularly provoked her year after year after year with bitterness, it says, until she would be in tears. She had to wait to see the Lord's answer, to see what, how the Lord would work it out in her life. David walked with the Lord, anointed by Samuel, lived life on the run for about 10 years, most commentators think, while sinful Saul hunts him down, hunts him down every nook and cranny of the wilderness of southern Judah, out in the middle of nowhere. He's, he's, he just hunts him down anywhere he turns. Saul's going to be on him. Near escapes numerous times. And he, you know what happens with David? He too, like, like Asaph, gives in. He goes to great despair. Instead of saying, surely I've kept, been, kept my life pure in vain, he says this, surely I will die by the hands of Saul. He gives up. He goes and he joins the enemy, the Philistines, for one year and four months. He joins the arch enemy of Israel, the sworn enemy, even though he's the, he is the anointed next king. And he's willing to go fight against Israel, Saul and his men, and kill Israelites. I think David was, was he was going to do it. But he had to be corrected by the Lord. That Ziklag, when the town burned down, if you remember. And he's lost his wife, wives and his kids and all of his men. And his men were about to stone him. This was, the, this was it. This was his turning point, just like Asaph. And the Lord showed up and got David back on the right track. But David still had to wait to see how the Lord would work all of this out. What about the prophets? I mean, look at the prophets. Walk before the Lord Elijah, Jeremiah, fill in the blank. They spoke his name, but they're surrounded by wicked, unrepentant people, mocked. They were mocked. They were ignored. They, the prophets were abused. They were mistreated, sometimes killed. They had to look for a future promise that many of them never got to see. They never got to see the Acherith, the end. They, they, just, they read it. They prophesied about it. They never saw it actually occur. What about the apostles? They walk for the Lord. They're surrounded by an evil generation. They too, mocked, beaten, left for dead, stoned, martyred. You could ask the question, why go down this road? You could, could have been so much easier over here. But they stayed the course. They stayed the course. The Lord used them in a powerful way. They, they looked towards the future time and time again. I, took, I was having to cut slides because of time, but I had verses from Paul and Peter both that said, you wait eagerly for the revealing of, of, of the Son of God. And in, while you wait, you live denying ungodliness, denying the worldly road, 
denying the worldly passions, both Paul and Peter say. Why do you do that? Because you're waiting, looking towards the end, the acarith that will come. And you look at Habakkuk. I mean, Habakkuk, the prophet Habakkuk, has, is a classic case in point. He says in Habakkuk 1, 2, he says, How long, O Lord, will I call for help, and wilt thou wilt not hear? I cry out to thee, violence, yet thou dost not save. Why dost thou make me see iniquity, cause me to look on wickedness? Yes, destruction and violence are before me. Strife exists and contentions arises. Therefore, the law is ignored and justice is never upheld, for the wicked surround the righteous. Therefore, justice comes out perverted. You hear Habakkuk's complaint before the Lord. He sees it too. He has no problem. Why do you make me see it this way? I look out on Judah. By the way, this would be Judah during the time of Manasseh. After you you, you look at all the, the idolatry that has come in to Judah under Manasseh and Amnon and these these horribly wicked kings. And then you have a brief time under Josiah, but then right back to it even worse than ever. And you're like, Habakkuk's like, I I can't bear this anymore. The nation just filled, our nation, our culture just filled rampant with evil. I don't want to see it. And I cry out for you to do something, but there's no justice here. But he gets corrected. The Lord answers him right away and says, Record the vision, Habakkuk, and inscribe it on the tablets that the one who reads what I'm about to tell you may run away. For the vision is yet for the appointed time. It hastens towards the goal, and it will not fail. Though it tarries, wait for it, for it will certainly come. It will not delay. Behold, as for the proud one, his soul is not right within him. But the righteous will live by faith. One of Paul's favorite verses, he quotes it in Romans and Galatians. Habakkuk gets corrected by the Lord, says, I'm going to do something about it. And mark my words, it will happen. And it will happen at the right time, at the right place. And by the way, I'm going to raise up someone that you never would have guessed to accomplish what I'm going to do. And that's the Chaldean army, led by, the, by none other than Nebuchadnezzar. People, the historians have studied Nebuchadnezzar and his great empire and his might. Well, who raised him up to do what he did? The Lord did. And God says, I'm going to use it. And and, and every head in Israel will be so shocked that I would do this. But I will judge the nation of Judah through Nebuchadnezzar, through the Chaldeans. Mark my words, he says. But then you also get to the amazing end. Just like Asaph, you see this beautiful words like, man, this guy's on fire. This guy's just, he's just so pumped up saying, all I desire is you and I'm all about you. Well, guess where Habakkuk ends? Same story. He says, though the fig tree should not blossom and there be no fruit on the vines, though the yield of the olive should fail and the fields produce no food, though the flock should be cut off from the fold and there be no cattle in the stalls, nothing looks good. Everything's going downhill. Every, I just can't see. It just looks so bad. But guess what I will say? Yet I will exult in the Lord. I will rejoice in the God of my salvation. The Lord God is my strength and he has made my feet like hinds feet and makes me walk on high places. I always love Habakkuk. So you get to the end and you're just like, this is incredible stuff. 
he starts out in complaint, yelling out, exclamation points, violence, violence. Why don't you do something about this? I'm tired of seeing this. Justice is perverted. But by the end, it's like, oh, it's okay. Even if it looks like everything's going down the tubes, I can rest in the Lord. I know you'll work it out in your time. And it's, it's an amazing picture. Now, we've seen today two roads presented. One is the road of the wicked, and, the, and, the, and they, they at times can prosper on that road. But we've also seen the road of the God-fearing, the righteous, that struggle, they face hardship. And it reminds me of what Jesus said in Matthew 7, 13. He says, enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the way is broad that leads to destruction. And many of those who, are, who enter by it, for the gate is small and the way is narrow that leads to life, and few are those who find it. You see, Jesus presents the similar two roads, a wide, a wide road, path of the sinners, the wicked, the arrogant, and then the narrow road, the path of the righteous. And by the way, don't get caught up envying and looking over at the wide road. It's real easy to look over at the wide road, but Proverbs says, it, Solomon, quoting his dad who, who said this in Psalm 37, don't let your heart envy sinners, but live in the fear of the Lord always. Surely there is a future and your hope will not be cut off. Notice the look towards the same acarith word there in verse 18. Surely there is an acarith here that you need to be aware of and your hope will not be cut off. And I want to give a close with a quick illustration. Throw that next slide up there, Kyle. When I go out to Colorado, I love going to Colorado. And my, my, when I was a kid, we'd go to Colorado every year. My grandma and granddad lived out there and uh, we'd go out there. I love, I just absolutely love Colorado. The thing about Colorado, though, there's so many places to explore. And, and you go out there and, and you know, you can, you can go up I-70 and go over Vale Pass. You might be able to go over Wolf Creek Pass, maybe Independence Pass. You love going over these huge, you know, they're, they're neat big roads. You drive over and you get to see things. Perhaps you, you enjoy going through the Eisenhower Tunnel. Maybe you like, you know, going to a state campground, something like this. But when I was a kid, my parents started doing something that started a little tradition that we did that was a little different. We would rent Jeeps, and we would go off the regular road. We would go way off the regular road. And roads that have signs like this, Telluride, City of Gold, 12 miles away. It'll take you two hours. You don't have to be crazy to drive this road, but it definitely helps. Jeeps are going to be the only thing that you're going to put on this road. I like this other sign. Beyond this point... This trail goes from moderate to difficult. Vehicle body and mechanical damage, likely. Please do not exceed your limitations. Please park in provided areas. Minimum tow truck service beyond this point, $500. You get into points where these roads are, they're, they're serious roads. Uh, they're very daunting. If you look at this picture, this is Black Bear Pass outside of Telluride, which that would Telluride sign that we read a minute ago. You can see this little zigzag. That's the road. And you sit there and you're like, that's the road we've got to go up? And as a little kid, I was like, Dad, do you know what you're doing here? You know, it, it is a scary, it's a scary road. The road is filled. We'll go on to the next slide. There's several things you see that on this road. They're, they're, they're very steep. There's drop-offs. There's no, trust me, no guardrails on these roads. Uh, this, is, this is a picture when I was a kid right here, the, the lower left. Uh, if you were to roll off, you know, you, you, you generally carry quite a ways. This is another picture from when I was a kid over here. 
And, you know, you're, you're, it's pretty steep. Go on to the next slide there, Kyle. Um, and, you know, when you're on this road, you'll encounter obstacles. You, I always, you know, loved coming to big rivers. I'm not sure my dad was super excited, but as little boys, we were thrilled when he come to a big river and like, Dad, are you going to go into Are we going to try to get across this river? Sure enough, you, you, you wade into it. You have to go through, you know, rocks like this one over here where you're just, you know, the, the whole Jeep's just rocking left and right. Go on to the next slide. This is Black Bear Pass, so this guy's having to come down. You get a little sense the suspension's being heavily taxed. But, you know, you, you go off that side here. It's a loose gravel. So, you know, if you begin to slide at all, you're barely, you're just creeping and crawling along at a snail's pace. But that's, it, you know, it, it's an incredibly difficult thing to go on these roads. Go on to the next slide. It's actually dangerous to fall off the road. As Paul would say, it, it can be very perilous to fall shipwrecked in your faith. It's very dangerous to fall off the narrow road. You fall down and you see this Jeep. I do remember one path we were driving on. I saw an old, rusted, mangled old Jeep. I was like, let's just keep on going. <laughs> let's just see if we can make it safely through this obstacle. But the thing that I wanted to get at, the reason I go down this whole road, is when you get to the end, when you get to the, the reason why you do these roads is because the views that you have, this is just a little bit of an idea, you, the views that you have, and this isn't just a plug for Jeeps, by the way. I mean, uh, this looks like an all, I'm really making a big plug for, for you to go buy yourself a Jeep. But yeah, trust me, if you bought a Jeep, you would never want to take it on one of these roads. At least I wouldn't. I'd rather rent and pay for someone else's Jeep to get banged up instead of my own because it, 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 it does some damage. But anyway, the end of the road is incredible. The views are incredible. Go on to the next slide, Kyle. This is actually another result of our 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 trips. Here I am at the top of Engineer Pass in southwest Colorado. Here I am with my brother looking out over the valley over Ophir Pass. And, and, and I, I vividly remember that day here on the right. I remember going and we found this perfectly blue and clear lake, little pond, little lake. You could see down to the very bottom of it. And it was just a picturesque place that, you know, is way off the, the regular road. And my, of course, as, as brothers, we're challenging each other. Are you going to jump? If I jump in, you jump in. Can we do it? The water's freezing cold. We, we managed to jump in for about a second and a half and then right back. I mean, this is just incredibly cold. But the point is, is that when you get to the end of the narrow road, the result, like Asaph says, is glory. You get to be, be, see things and experience things that if you would have stayed on I-70, you never get to experience these. I guarantee it. If you stay on the big wide road that has all the cars and they're flying along, you never get to see these perspectives. But you also have to realize that when you go down this road, it's pretty tough. It isn't for the, the faint or light of heart. You'll probably ask the question as you look over at I-70, like Asaph did, what am I doing up here? This seems foolish. It seems like it is in vain. They're able to move at 70 miles an hour with great ease. I'm moving at two miles per hour, if that. And I have a danger. I could fall off. I'm slipping. I'm about to fall. But look at them over there. The Bible says, don't worry about looking over there. Stay on the narrow road. It leads to great things. And so I want to close by saying, consider your afterwards. Consider your end. Don't get caught up in the things of the world. 
don't go down the road of envying sinners and, and, and going down that sort of angle. However, when you do struggle with those questions, go before the Lord. He's faithful to, to give us answers. Don't abandon the narrow, difficult trail for the wide road with many travelers. Take hold of doctrines like Romans 8, 28. Take hold of those. Make them personal doctrines that you can say, this, this letter and this verse Paul wrote is to me. I can take this. It is for me. God is my good. And think about this. Here's your future right here. I want to close with this, and then I'm done. Here is the future. If you say, what is the end of that narrow road? I just showed you what the end of the Jeep trails were, you know, lakes, views, you know, all kinds of great things there. But guess what? The end of our road, the Christian road, is way better than a Jeep trail. It's way beyond. 1 Corinthians 15 says, Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised imperishable, and we shall be changed. For this perishable must put on the imperishable, and this mortal must put on immortality. But when the perishable have come, have, sorry, but when this perishable will have put on the imperishable and this mortal will have put on immortality, then will come about the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? You ask the question, where did Paul get those statements? Where did he draw this whole thing about uh, death is swallowed up in victory? Read about it in Isaiah. 25, and the Lord of hosts will prepare a lavish banquet for all the peoples on this mountain, a banquet of aged wine, choice pieces of marrow and refined aged wine. And on this mountain, he will swallow up the covering which is over all peoples, even the veil which is stretched over all nations. He will swallow up death for all time. And the Lord will wipe away, wipe tears away from all faces and he will remove the reproach of his people from all the earth. For the Lord has spoken. And this verse I love. And it will be said in that day, Behold, this is our God for whom we have waited that he might save us. This is the Lord for whom we have waited. Let us rejoice and be glad in his salvation. That's the destiny. That is the afterwards for the narrow road. Let's close. Lord, we just thank you for this time. We thank you for your word. We thank you for moving Asaph, Lord, and that he opened up his heart to let us look in to see a struggle that many of us have faced, and we still today look out and we see the wicked and the arrogant and the prideful. And yet, Lord, when we do so, we want to draw, turn our eyes back to you and say, Lord, what is it? to walk this road that you put before us? How can we have the strength to do so? Look to you, Lord, for strength that you may fill us, that we may take the doctrinal truths of your word and truly make them personal in our lives. It's not just something we know in our head that you're good towards those who are called according to your name, but that we, we believe it's true for us. And while we might encounter the big, the big rivers, the big, the big stones, the big obstacles, the daunting trail, the very narrow road with cliffs on our left and our right, and we don't know how we're going to make it. Lord, help us to remember 
the afterwards. Help us to remember the acarith that, that awaits at the end, the future. Surely there is a future and our hope will not be cut off. That we will arrive at that mountain, at that great feast, and we too will be able to say, behold, this is our God in whom we have waited. Lord, help us to have that attitude, the eternal perspective. We pray and ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.